John, thank you so much for coming on to Startup Steroid and talking to us about Axios. Uh, this is going to be a fantastic uh, interview because, like I said before we started recording, uh, I'm sort of a space nerd and I love learning about rockets and uh, satellites and things of that nature. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna get into all of that today and uh, really explore um, the company that you're putting together. But before we do, I know you have a sort of a personal story. Uh, the reason why you started this company. So why don't we start there? Tell us about uh, sort of what that initial motivation was. Yeah, so always been interested in space, but uh, one particular thing really got my attention, and it was an experiment by Mayo Clinic, Dr. Abba Zubair, uh, and Center for Applied Space Technologies, so Mr. Larry Harvey. Well, they put an experiment on the International Space Station, and the problem is in 2015, they put that experiment up and it was for MSC or mesenchymal stem cells. And these are the cells that if you have an organ shut down or a kidney that's failing, a heart that's having problems, these cells automatically activate and go to treat the condition within your body. No drugs. It's just very natural. And it's part of how our body responds to trauma. Um, as we get older, that trauma, it, it takes more and more for our bodies to activate those stem cells. They kind of get lazy, which, you know, some of us get that way when we get older, too. So anyway, five years later, after he started this project, he had phase one clinical trials and had great results. And the one I know about is Larry Harvey's neighbor who had had a stroke. Now, strokes are the number two killer in the world. And those who survive strokes very often have very debilitating symptoms afterwards. Well, his neighbor, we can't find him today. And even with COVID, that's because he was part of those phase one clinical trials. And when before he was housebound, he couldn't walk without a walker. He had problems with his eyesight. The treatment actually reversed that. And now he's out traveling the world, even in this COVID situation where He's uh, he'll quarantine for a couple weeks somewhere. And he said, you know what? I miss too much of my life. I'm not going to go out without having seen the world. So he's out traveling the world. Um, but it gets per more personal than that. About a year and a half ago, my dad had a uh, hemorrhagic stroke and he's in assisted living. He can't walk. He's lost about 70% of his peripheral vision, struggles with his sight, and he's on the phase two trials. Um, he's been there for over a year now, um, obviously because we're working with Mayo Clinic, I know the people and they've got him on the list, but it still takes years to manufacture the millions of stem cells that are required to do these treatments, unless you're in space. And what Dr. Zubair's experiment proved is that the stem cell activation and growth on the International Space Station occurred within weeks. They had 100% growth rate, more viability of the cells. And I won't pretend to know all the details of it, but he's got some great articles out there on YouTube that explain it. On our rockets, which are reusable first stage rockets, we could literally do this in a matter of months, produce thousands of pounds of mesenchymal stem cells um, and actually serve the world with a capability that is what they really call 
regenerative medicine, and probably best stated by a company out of Houston, Texas. Um, and what they say is, you know, MSC stem cell treatment doesn't reverse the aging process, but it helps people age better. And so to be able to provide that to the world is a way for us to exploit space. I believe in space exploration, but I believe if we could first exploit the 25 years of research that we've done on the ISS and make it an on-demand service where we could do it in weeks or months, um, we change the world. That's such a fantastic way to start this conversation because a lot of people think about rockets and uh, you know going to space and things like that. Besides the human aspect, you know, it, they don't necessarily understand why we're doing it, right? And here's a very direct, tangible reason why we're going to space. A lot of people have heard of stem cell therapy, but they don't necessarily know that the thing that's slowing us down is the development of those stem cells. On the ground, it takes months, if not years. In space, it can take days and weeks. And if we can just have better access to space, we can help tons and tons of people here on the ground without them ever having to leave, uh, you know, uh, leave the planet. Um, so that that that's sort of you know the north star. I think that's what people need to keep in mind as we sort of get into this conversation. Um, so with that as our prologue, let's get into the company Axios. Uh, when did you start this? And tell us sort of the initial idea that you had. Um, I think it was six or seven years ago, right? Yeah, so I actually started six years ago, and um, I was I started my career in Navy submarines, so I kind of did the depths of the oceans. I went into the power industry as an engineer uh, for about 20 years, working for a boss. Then I met this gentleman, David Mitchell, fourth-generation oil man, owned multiple businesses, thought, taught stock trading. He was a pastor. Um, and he taught me how to trade stocks so I could literally fire my boss. Um, I found myself part-time making more money trading stocks than I was working 70, 80 hours a week for wow. my boss. So I said, you know what? I'm going to quit. And I have an amazingly supportive wife. Phenomenal. I said, hey, I think I'm going to quit my job and uh, spend everything we have in our retirement on these Navy submarine technologies that I made 20 years ago. Well, it was back in the day, the computers would have filled a room and now, you know, we can put them in the device I made. So I'm like, I'm gonna do that. And I spent two years developing that technology for the Navy, um, building up my company. And when I needed software help, I went to these rocket scientists and uh, they helped write the code and machine some of the parts we needed for that device. Uh, unfortunately, the Navy uh, took the technology and uh, gave it to a big prime to develop. Mm. So it's kind of a bummer, but just as that was happening, uh, John Carmack, you might know him, video gamer, uh, came up with all mm -hmm. the first-person shooter stuff, Call of Duty was, you know, he did all the back end uh, for that. Well, he had a hobby. And for 15 years, he was building lunar landers. I mean, they won round one of the uh, Google XPRIZE challenge for lunar lander development. They sold the lunar lander to NASA. They put rockets on, or rocket engines on the back of aircraft. 
and a couple of them flew together in the Tulsa Air Show. Um, and the prime contractor couldn't do it in three years. And this team did it in a matter of three months. They actually <laughs> built entire propulsion systems, put them on these rockets. So they have rocket planes. And the company uh, he had, uh, which everybody's familiar with id Software, um, had gone public. He lost control of it. So he went to work for Oculus as their chief technology officer. And then they were bought out by Facebook for $2 billion. Mm -hmm. And as I understand it, he basically got golden handcuffs and they said, we don't want you working on rockets anymore. Uh, we don't want you distracted. We want you doing our 3D gaming headsets and you know, working that technology. So uh, he agreed, okay. So he put the company into hibernation mode. And that was just about the time that these guys were finishing up my submarine technologies and I started on a business plan and I went to my buddy David Mitchell and I said hey David gotta come up to the airport I got I got a museum to show you and some guys I really want you to meet so I brought him up to the airport and you walk in and it's literally hundreds of rocket engines and things oh, wow. they've made and you know lunar landers and our, our CTO is an amazing guy. He actually rode on one of those lunar landers um, on Earth, of course, but he rode on it, actually strapped a chair on. So he did the first vertical takeoff, vertical launch on one of those years before nice. SpaceX was even around. And uh, he looked at it and he was amazed and he calls me on his way back to Corsa Kenny and says, hey, we can't let these guys stop. We've got to figure out how to help them. I said, yeah, look at your inbox when you get home. I've already emailed you the business plan. <laughs> I've been working on it for like three months, right? Putting this all together, set this all up. He was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so he called me back and he said, this is amazing. We need to buy the assets and we need to help these guys uh, get back to space. Because the way they're going right now, they just started running a machine company. And it, it was going to take too long and that competitive advantage they had of having flown reusable rockets uh, was just amazing. So uh, we didn't do it with the billions that SpaceX and Blue Origin had. We did it with millions, small team, total of about 20. And uh, we're one of four companies in the world who have flown a reusable rocket, uh, in our case, four times. So fantastic, uh, that's amazing. Out. Yeah, no, that that's that's an amazing story, and uh, wow, some of those conversations sound <laughs> really, really interesting. Um, let's talk about the technology a little bit because this is unique. From you know, when people picture rockets, they expect something to sort of shoot up from the ground. Um, th we're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about something slightly different. Um, tell us about your technology and how it's sort of plane mounted and uh, the actual yeah. physics behind it. So there's a problem. Um, space access isn't flexible enough. Uh, even with SpaceX, you know, they'll launch and they're launching things the size of school buses. You know, we're launching things the size of a person, you know, so much smaller payloads. Um, but they may put something up and they're taking that school bus and they may have multiple payloads, but it may take it three or four months to get to the orbit that you want it in. And when you're launching, you know, a hundred of your own satellites, yeah, you can deal with that. But when you need to get to a certain area now, 
as an on-demand surface. Um, that's not really going to serve us that well because what if I need a polar inclination? Well, now I have to build launch infrastructure here. I have to build launch infrastructure somewhere else. And those are, you know, 25, 40, 50 million dollar structures that we have to build. What if we could do it flexible and launch from anywhere and get away from the biggest problem that I see in the whole launch market? While SpaceX and Blue Origin might be able to launch every day because of the huge demand that's out there. I think there's like 9,000 satellites out there to be launched in the five-year projection. Um, Even if they could launch every day, the airlines would have to shut down so many airports and so many flight routes for them to do it that I think, I don't know, I think the airline industry and the customers who need to get from place to place would win. So what we did is we signed a joint venture agreement with some guys out of Phoenix space. And they are the licensees of a NASA technology that was developed by DARPA, NASA, uh, Kelly Space Technologies, that's now Phoenix space. And it's to take a glider, put your rocket on it and use a tow plane. Now, uh, we all know Virgin Galactic just had an amazing success, applaud, hats off to them. Um, but I have a little problem with strapping a liquid fueled rocket to the wing of a 747 because <laughs> sooner or later, you're going to have an event like we had on the pad with SpaceX where they had an explosion and that would kill everyone on that aircraft. But what if you had a glider that was rocket propelled and you could tow it with an aircraft and it's a thousand feet away from the glider. So if it explodes, Okay, you just cut it away and you go back and you land at the airport. Everyone's fine. But what else it does is I don't have to launch near people. I mean, everyone, it's great to go watch a launch uh, from the Florida Space Coast, but you know how many people, if something goes wrong, are at risk around that launch site? It's amazing. And they pay huge insurance premiums for that. So another competitive advantage of launching over the ocean or the sea is you can go to any orbital inclination very easily by just flying over the right section of uh, sea. Um, You put the thing in containers to ship it around the world and use it wherever you want. We can actually launch from Europe. And we just started a business in Italy because Europe doesn't have a great launch site. They do have one um, in Northern Europe. Very, very cold there. But... We would like to do autonomous launch from a glider, much safer, reach orbital inclinations that are hard to get to uh, without flying over people and land. And uh, it's just an amazing technology that we look to uh, bring to the world to do just what I said earlier, exploit space rather than explore it. We'll, we'll leave that exploration to uh, Elon and uh and Blue Origin, uh, and, uh, and we'll, yeah. take the, we'll take that other uh, side where we're doing things to bring back to Earth. Right, right, right. We want to be we want to be focused on making money. <laughs> but exactly, uh, <laughs> I, I think you you talked about a couple of things. A lot of investors out there, and uh, you know, even laymen, um, they may not understand. So let's define a couple of things for them. You talked about um, the inclination, which is a huge part when you're talking about rockets which a lot of people don't understand. You know, if you're launching from one spot, let's say 
you know, Orlando, Florida, uh, uh, you're launching from Kennedy Space, then you're essentially going in one direction. Now, yes, you can adjust that angle, but essentially that's your starting point. So you're, you're stuck with where you can go. You, you know, you're limited to where you can go. With inclination, with what I understand is that if you're on a plane getting towed, you can change the direction, you can change the angle of that plane, you can change the flight plan to suit where you want that satellite to go. Is that right? Yeah, and I'll just break it down to two easy common orbital inclinations. One is yeah. uh, equatorial. And yeah. the great thing about an equatorial launch is you actually pick up speed from the, cur the turning of the earth, right? So uh, right. Uh, equatorial launch is great. I could do that from Space Coast Florida, for example, right? Yep. However, what if I needed to go polar? I wanted to look at the North Pole and the South Pole. Well, I've got to go the other direction. Well, if I launch from Space Coast Florida from the ground, I'd fly right over Washington, D.C. And there are a few people there. What if I dropped something, right? <laughs> um, not the best thing. But think about it. On a, on a towed glider, I could fly out, get over the sea, and then launch north from there. And I've got thousands of miles before I leave any ocean, right? So I'm sitting right yep. there off the coast. And I can hit that orbital inclination where the rocket would have to fly out and then do a turn. And there's a reason they don't do it. It takes so much fuel. But if you can use that plane and then the glider, the, re the way we found those guys is they came to us to develop the rocket engine because we have a rocket engine that I told you about on those rocket racers was mm -hmm. started a thousand times. So it's very reusable. That's what they wanted for the glider. And now that rocket engine picks you up, puts you at the right angle to fly up to do that polar orbit even. So uh, you can't hit every everything from you know one location, but that's when I put it in shipping containers and take it over to the other coast if I need to do something yep. from the West yep. Coast. And that, that's, so let's talk about that also. That's a, another very important uh, uh, strength that you have that, you know, if you're launching from Florida, let's say if uh, uh, China wants to launch a missile, missile or Europe wants to launch a missile, they actually, uh, I sh shouldn't use the word missile, uh, a satellite. A rocket. They would have, <laughs> a rocket. They would have to put it on a ship, actually send it to America to launch, which is again, difficult. Um, with your setup, you can essentially take that plane and glider anywhere in the world, get, you know, use a regular airport to launch a satellite. Uh, instead of having exactly. an actual launch infrastructure, right? So that's fantastic. Uh, let's let's talk about the actual glider and the plane, uh, because a lot of people don't understand the reusable uh, reusability of a rocket engine and the rocket. Because I think people uh, fail to understand that there's no off button on most of the rockets that are made today, right? Exactly. So you you hit on. And then that's it. It's one time, and uh, it gets you to space, and then the, that rocket is useless. Um, so tell us how yours is different, and the engine and uh, the entire systems are different. Yeah. So um, our rocket engines are nothing like SpaceX, nothing like Blue Origin, but and nothing like NASA, to be honest. I mean, they don't have the huge, huge thrust numbers. Um, I was actually on a call with NASA probably two months ago now. And they said, you know, after 10 uses of the space shuttle main engines, 
we're starting to see indications of cracking and they're yep. getting near their end of life. Well, I credit Len Fox and Dave Morse. I think Len Fox was the test pilot on those rocket racers. And because the airframes were limited to about 300 miles an hour, they were going to have to go head to head in these sorties and competitions that they were doing for kind of the NASCAR experience, but with rocket planes, they were going to have to turn the engines off because after about 18 seconds of burn on that rocket engine, you were at the limit of the airframe. So they'd turn it off, they'd glide around, do their patterns right. and their acrobatics, and then turn the engine back on. And he was like, I want to see a thousand relights of this engine before I get in that aircraft. Because if I'm taking off and I can't turn that engine back on, yep. I may not make it back to the runway. So I want- You're done, I yeah. So the guys ran 32,768 pounds of fuel through this rocket engine to do 1,000 starts. Wow. And uh, of course, I've, we've still got the engine, right? And <laughs> after 1,000 starts, we're starting to see some indications of cracking that are actually even repairable. But I think we'll say 1,000 starts is a pretty cool thing. And our technology really uh, is very simple. Um, we use pre pressure fed engines. We'll take those same concepts into our orbital launcher. Uh, we'll just run a pump system and much like Rocket Lab, we'll run electric pumps. Um, but very reliable uh, technology as Len Fox and Dave Morris got to do uh, hundreds of in-air relights as they uh, flew those rocket racers. And uh, just amazing to see a rocket engine get turned off intentionally after right. 18 <laughs> seconds and then come back on. And my favorite comment through that whole thing was Len, uh, he was an Air Force pilot, or I'm sorry, a Navy pilot who got launched off of an aircraft carrier. And him saying, when I flip that switch, he said, the impulse I feel on that aircraft is more significant and actually outweighs wow. what he had getting launched off of an aircraft carrier by a catapult. So that's incredible. It's on now and it's just <laughs> amazing to have literally have a rocket strapped to your tail, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's beautiful. Um, so th this is fantastic, you know, groundbreaking technology that we're talking about. So I, I, I love that fact. Now let's talk about the actual satellites that you're launching. Um, you know, we've heard the term CubeSats and things of that nature. Um, tell us where you fit into that equation. Obviously, you're not launching school buses. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about smaller scale satellites. Uh, but what's your sweet spot? Yeah, so really um, what we have today is a suborbital reusable launch vehicle. We can take those concepts and apply them to orbital where suborbital being it goes to space and it comes mm -hmm. back 20 minutes later, lands on the ground right where you launched it from basically. Um, our next step is obviously leveraging what the research done on the ISS, putting things into orbit where they circle the earth for one week, two weeks, three weeks, whatever the, uh, our customer tells us they need. Um, and our sweet spot answers two problems. Again, I applaud SpaceX. Uh, they did a educational payload where they kicked out like 64 satellites. And I think, 
the numbers I saw, and I haven't verified them, were like 20 of those failed within seconds of being ejected. Oh, now, these were probably, I know one was a $125,000 research project for a university. Um, they kicked it out. They got two pings from it. It survived two seconds before it stopped. And it's a piece of space junk now, right? And it's only a 6U CubeSat. It's nothing huge. But it was their research experiment. And where our sweet spot is, is on a suborbital flight, we could have flown that for a fraction of the cost um, to space, exposed it to the vacuum of space, exposed it to the cold of space, and then brought it back. It cost $6,000 a kilogram. So let me grab a prop here. So this is a 1U CubeSat. It's about three and a quarter inches square. And I can put this in space for $6,000. But the cool thing is it comes back. So imagine those universities, even if they spent 125,000 on that experiment, what if they flew it on a suborbital flight, brought it back, and then they found out that, oh, there's a 13 cent capacitor on here that wasn't rated for vacuum that failed. <laughs> And that's why our experiment failed. There's a feedback mechanism. They can go back and troubleshoot it, fix it, fly it again, and say, okay, now they've got a way to learn from their experience. And mm -hmm. the, the 40 guys who were successful, congratulations. You know, they probably didn't need it, but uh, right. you know, that 30, 40% is significant to us. And it's not about um, necessarily making money on the suborbital program, but it is the world's best training platform. And I expect right. that we'll have it forever because one of the things we're doing is we're going into other nations, other allied nations like Italy, and we're saying, let us help you jumpstart your space program with research like this. I can train your guys, I can train our Space Force on a real liquid-fueled rocket that costs mm -hmm. thousands to launch, not millions, and guess what? It comes back. So right. it'll always be part of our National Charter Enterprise Program to help other nations grow their space programs, uh, but it's also centered around that same uh, camaraderie that the International Space Station showed the world. You know, I've never seen anything else in history where all the nations came together to support a single mission like we had on the ISS. I'd love to take that further than it's gone. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and practically speaking, you know, like you said, uh, this vehicle, if we can just use it to test anything that's going up on space station or test anything that's going up you know, permanently in, uh, instead of becoming space, space debris, let, let's test it first, make sure it's working, then put it up. Uh, so, you know, you can have a hundred thousand, several hundred thousand dollar satellite. And now for, you know, a few percentage increase in, uh, in cost, now you can actually test out the platform in zero G, make sure it's working, then put it up. Yeah, I work for Florida Power and Light. Um, large player in the power industry you know number one is environmentally conscious and uh what i had driven into me for 17 years was risk mitigation 
Yeah. And this is, if I could have found a risk mitigation program like this for the $100 million control systems I was working on in a power plant, I would have jumped all over it, right? Right. And now we're talking about going to uh, Mars. Well, those same technologies that we're developing on the ISS are the same things that are going to take us to Mars and beyond. And we believe our orbital program is what's going to allow us to do that testing, uh, maybe even fast enough to keep up with uh, Elon's demand for solving all the problems to get to Mars. Just maybe. Absolutely. <laughs> that yeah, that would be that would be uh, that would be great. Um, so. Now let's talk about you know what you what you're hoping to achieve in the next 12 24 months. Well, I have a pretty good understanding of where you are today. Uh, you're still suborbital. When do you hope to become orbital? What what's the next milestone? What are you shooting for? Yeah. So um, right now we have because of COVID payloads coming in from the universities, and we were a NASA ready provider, so we could fly. Uh, suborbital payloads for NASA under that program. Um, and we made a shift and we shifted over to Department of Defense. And we said, you know what? We've got a reusable supersonic vehicle. It does Mach 4. You know, zero to 62 and a half miles takes about three minutes. Things right. cooking. It's doing 27, 2800 miles an hour uh, when it goes to space, right? And uh, the vehicle recovers, comes back to Earth. Where we want to go in the next 12 months is we were given a contract by the Air Force to take what we've done with our supersonic vehicle and make it hypersonic, which means beyond Mach 5. Um, we have a really neat capability for that. We propose that we could actually go just take our vehicle, lighten it up uh, with some advanced materials. And not only could we do over Mach 5, but we could do something that no one else is doing. We could actually throttle our engines down and we could maintain that Mach 5, Mach 6, Mach 7, whatever the target speed is. Today, solid rocket boosters just go zero to Mach 25, right? Yep. They don't really say, oh, I'm at Mach 7, stop, cut the throttles back. <laughs> Not real easy to do on a, uh, on a solid, but with our yep. technology, it's something we could do. So we proposed it. We got the Sibber Phase 1. Uh, I was working on the contract today for the Cibber phase two, where they said, okay, we believe it, go build it. So right. we're building a hypersonic reusable launch vehicle. Nice. And what that's great for is materials testing, sensor testing. So that's nine months we're supposed to have that vehicle built. Um, we have a follow-on contract that we propose to go fly it. So within a year, go fly a hypersonic reusable launch vehicle. Um, but in parallel, we are launching to build our orbital launcher. That's a 600 kilogram launcher in Italy. And while we're building that in Italy, and it's amazing the capabilities over there, uh, where they're, the machine shops are very small and very flexible. So we wanted to leverage that in the Piemonte region, uh, Torino, Italy. So they'll be working on that vehicle, and that's our next launcher. Uh, within two years, we'll be well into the build of that vehicle. We'll have all the sub-assemblies sub coming together. And we're going to, in the U.S., we're going to make a smaller version. 
to prove out the technologies from the Toad Glider air launch that we were talking about earlier. We'll make a 35 kilogram to low Earth orbit launcher to test everything out with the Toad Glider air launch system. Uh, basically taking the prototyping and the work that NASA, DARPA, and Kelly Space did back 10 years ago, we're already, actually flight testing is occurring today of the fifth scale prototype um, out in California, not too far from you. Um, <laughs> so that's actually happening today, but then we're gonna take our SARS rocket, that supersonic vehicle, and we're gonna drop it from that glider and start all our testing over here, Nice. And then come up and also replicate that 600 kilogram launcher here in the U.S. And two years from now, uh, we'll have a pretty neat rocket shop with uh, the better part of a vehicle here and in Italy, and uh, be doing that towed glider testing. We do we do have a raise uh, that we need to complete to do the U.S. side. The Italy side is uh, well on its way to a funding plan. Uh, we had PricewaterhouseCooper help us with that. And we believe that the uh, economic relief from COVID that's coming in from the EU uh, is gonna help fund that program um, that we developed with PricewaterhouseCoopers. Fantastic, fantastic. So <laughs> John, uh, I just to, I mean, we've gone into a lot of different areas, but now I wanna sort of understand the big vision that you have for uh, Exos. Um, where do you see this going, you know, 10 years from now, 20 years from now? Are, are you the next uh, uh, Elon Musk or SpaceX? Uh, um, is, that, think, is that what the vision is? I think our vision is a little bit different. Again, the exploitation part is important, but the satellite part's real important too. So let me turn this back on you. I'll ask you a question. <laughs> okay. How much of the cargo going to the moon do you think will be people? Oh, small fraction, I think. Very small fraction. And that's my thought as well. So our rocket today is fully autonomous. We hit the engine ignition button and that's the last thing we have to do until it comes back and we're out there unbolting it, pulling the customer payload out. So 35 minutes after the launch, I'm handing that payload back to the customer. Um, right. In the case of uh, cancer research experiments we've done for Mayo Clinic and just getting cell survival rates up and things like that, phenomenal progress over three launches, right? Well, the reason I can do those experiments is because I don't have people on board. I don't have a $35 million Facebook satellite on board, right? So I can put, um, your experiment and your kids uh, hydrodynamics experiment that they came up with in seventh grade and the stuff we get from the the school sometimes amazes me um, but I can put those experiments on there together because nobody's got a multi-billion dollar satellite they've got thousand dollar satellites right so I can mix things up so my vision is that we would be the non-glamorous DHL or UPS truck that's just hauling the cargo to the moon that we need uh, to sustain life and to support the mission of going back to the moon, ultimately going to Mars. And again, uh, no life support systems, that makes my rockets lighter. Uh, 
at Florida Power and Light, I had an experience where we took wind turbines from 85% efficiency up to 96%. Made those assets worth a hundred times more than they were when we bought them. Right. The, the thing is, when we got to 96%, we stopped. Why? Because that 11% cost us, and I'll just throw fun numbers out there, $11 million. But to go from 96% to 97% was 100 million. It doesn't make right. sense anymore. And I see our advancement to go towards other planets as incremental along that same lines. If I could build a rocket that only had to be 96% or maybe it's 98% reliability, I could do it a lot cheaper. And if I didn't have to have the human systems, I could do it a lot cheaper. And so when you put all those things together, I'm trying to create a bus in the next 10 years that can reliably deliver cargo. And you know what? If I lose one out of 50 or one out of 25, that's acceptable because by doing that, I can bring those costs down and we will be the provider that's going out there and delivering things to the moon um, on the non-glamorous cargo aircraft. But you know what? I think that right. we can be effective in doing something like that. So that's our Absolutely. Mission. Absolutely. And yeah, I, I, this is the important thing, right? That uh, for space exploration, going to moon, Mars, uh, we're gonna need those high capacity, high reliability vehicles, but we're also gonna need the, uh, you know, the, 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 the Pintos of the world and the, the VW bugs of the world, which, you know, point A to B, point B, okay, we could manage that. Uh, not the most glamorous way to get around, but it, it'll get the job done, right? I think it's more about, for me, it's more about, we've all seen it and probably most of us don't understand it and I'm not the expert, but if I miss a launch window from Vandenberg Air Force Base, it might be 30 days before I can launch again and mm -hmm. get to the right trajectory. Yep. So, and I'll, I'll be a little dramatic. They need water. Okay, they need supplies. <laughs> They've got a system right. shutting down and we'll go to the, the Mars kind of story there where they don't have what they need. I can't wait 30 days for another launch. And that's what right. the Toad Glider Air Launch is all about. I'm not going to be the guy delivering the school bus size cargo. Yep. But when there's something that's needed and you need to get to that orbital inclination, we can fly a plane out to that orbital inclination. We yep. can fuel up the rocket and I don't have to wait 30 days. I can fly to where I can get that inclination and I can have something out there much quicker uh, to support an emergency need. And it, again, it's going to be a smaller payload, but we can do it quickly. So yeah. that's my vision for the company. Uh, that makes so glamour, much sense. But, yeah. but I think <laughs> it's something that we're going to need. No, absolutely. In my head, I'm thinking about, you know, what do what do they do when they need a, a special ranch on the space station? They have they to wait for it. the next, uh, <laughs> 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 right. <laughs> but no, right. And then they, they recycle the something else launch. to be able to have the material right. to print it. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But no, uh, th this, is, uh, this has been a fantastic conversation. 
Thank you so much for coming on, John. I think uh, I, I really you know, appreciated learning about the story. And I think uh, it's a fantastic idea. And uh, this is such an exciting world uh, uh, with this kind of companies and these kinds of ideas in it now. Um, so I, I'm really grateful for you, you know, for your time and for you coming on. And uh, yeah, I hope we can continue the conversation. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. Uh, love your questions and uh, be great to keep in touch. Absolutely. All right. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks.